This episode of the Dirtbag Diaries is brought to you by Patagonia, makers of high-quality clothing and gear for outdoor sports, world travel, and daily lives lived in harmony with nature. Visit them on the web at patagonia.com. This is Shane Robinson. We're standing in the small storage area of a Seattle home, looking at a bright yellow kayak. Uh, it's, it's what we had on, in, in Peru. Um, same, same model, same, I had the same color, everything. Shane is a soft-spoken 34-year-old who's about to begin a career in land-use law. He doesn't punctuate each sentence with bro or dude. He does not live life to get radical. Each rapid, each run presents Shane with the opportunity to exist in a razor-sharp world of surging water and boat-eating holes. For 15 years, he's been searching for the edge of his ability. Running a really hard drop, you're not thinking about anything else. You're just in the moment of that drop. You know, the, the very minutia paddle strokes you need to be making. As human nature, we're plan- like we're planners and we're thinkers and we're you know, we're doers and enjoying and embracing the moment is like almost against our nature. Like we're, we're meant to be like ahead of our, ourselves, I think. While our levels of commitment, the hours we spend training, the fervor with which we paddle, climb, or ski, they may vary. But to some extent, we are all searching for that moment when our abilities, our experience, when our mental control are perfectly balanced against risk. If all goes right, for a few moments, we exist in the teetering sway of the present. I mean, sometimes that edge, it becomes apparent on one rapid. And you know, oh, I went beyond that edge on that rapid like I should have portaged. But when all of a sudden you're doing that day in and day out for seven days, you know, you just start to like tap into it. a little. You become a little bit more aware of where that edge is. You have to be, I think, or else you're probably risking danger. If you're a climber, I want you to think to the most tenuous finger lock or the smallest handhold you've ever held on to. If you're a mountain biker, I want you to think about letting the grasp on the brake ease, the bike accelerating until the wind draws tears from the corners of your eyes. How long can you sustain that for? A few minutes? Maybe an hour? Now imagine the mental output that it would take to sustain that for days. In the summer of 2007, Shane found himself paddling down Peru's isolated Apurimac River, one of the Amazon's five major tributaries. Ahead of him lay the abysmo, a deep, daunting gash in the earth. He and his paddling partners, Andrew and Brian, knew two things about the stretch of river they were about to paddle into. First, that the abysmo was going to be big. There would be miles and miles of massive slot canyons and fifth-class whitewater. Second, the end of their journey would come in the form of a big, ugly, orange bridge named Puente Pasaje. Everything between was unknown. They had no map, no aerial photos, and enough food for five days. Fifteen years of kayaking had led to this moment. Today, we bring you Datos Insuficientes. Stories from Shane Robinson, photos by the Range Life. I'm Fitzka Hall, and you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Tudo perguntando aonde nossa lembrança se esconde.
onde meus avós gritarão. So I want to give you a little bit of background first. Shane, Brian Smith, and Andrew Oberhardt, when they arrived in Peru, they had no intention of kayaking the Abismo. They had come to South America to run the Huayaga River. They had won something called the Vacation to Hell. It's put on and paid for by Immersion Research. Essentially, a team applies for a grant to complete a kayaking first somewhere around the world. And the catch is that they have no idea where it's going to be. Immersion Research picks the destination. So they've been sent to Peru to make this first descent of the Huayaga, the last Amazon tributary yet to be run. So they spent a year planning. They compiled maps, the tiniest fragments of information from locals. They poured over aerial photos. But in the end, four and a half days into the river, they had to call it quits. And bailing was not a pleasant option. It didn't mean packing up and hiking to the road just above the gorge. It meant hiking out through one of the remotest regions of Peru, 40 miles from the nearest paved road, through trains that appeared on government maps as empty white space with the words datos insuficientes stenciled across it. With the information we had, we just couldn't go. Like, it was just one of those times when all the years of experience tell you, don't go. Yeah. And so in, there was actually, like, this relief at one point where, like, oh, I'm trusting my instincts. Like, it says don't go. I'm not going. You know, pat yourself on the back for recognizing and having another day yeah. to paddle. Still, morale was low. Afterwards, they considered packing up and heading back home to the States or maybe visiting Machu Picchu's famed ruins. Eventually, though, their Peruvian friend and local raft guide named Piero, who had been with them on the aborted trip, talked them into coming to Cusco to have a go at the Abismo. While the Abismo had been run before, little had been written about the river's first descent. Two parties had completed this stretch of the Apuramac. But we knew that one team had done it in two days, and one team had done it in five days. Which, those are pretty big, that's a pretty big discrepancy. Shane also knew that before the bridge, there would be a large tributary, followed by a large rapid, followed by a bridge a quarter of a mile or so later. We kind of just knew that we should be able to deal with what we would encounter as we would encounter it. On the micro level, it's all the same. It's, you know, you go to the next eddy, you, from the eddy you assess, like, I can either kayak or I need to get out and scout or portage. You know, okay, I, I can go to the next eddy, and you just keep going eddy by eddy, you know, or drop by drop, or, you know, corner of the river by corner of the river. And, and the maps and the planning, in some ways, lose relevance. Flatwater gently pushed the team towards the gates of the canyon. And then the horizon line appeared, the hum of the rapid grew to a roar, they were entering the abyssal. They won the actual white water on the abysmo section of the Aparimac River through. And I think it's supposed to get heavy. It is a simple move around the hole, but it is also a thin line with little margin for error. A big hydraulic capable of swallowing the boat looms on the left. As I shoot by the hole, the eddy line boils up off the canyon wall to the right, 
slowing my passage to safety. It surfs me, not in the hole, but right beside it. It is like the river wants to just hold me for a second and warn me, like a football coach who is putting you in to run the special play and has to give you that final piece of crucial instruction. A moment later, and I am flushed downstream into one of the most amazing box canyons that I had ever paddled through. We were just gaining a lot of confidence in, in making headway downriver. We had dealt with some portages, and we dealt with some big rapids, and, and this one wasn't, you know... I don't know that it was the hardest river but or rapid, but it was just one that we had to pay attention to and and the surge just kinda held me. And it kinda held like it kinda felt like it might push me into the hydraulic or the hole or it might just let me go and and it just provided this like, you know, great reminder, like a refocusing moment to say, Okay, like it's still it's still big. It's still we're not you know, we're not winning this battle, we're just kinda sliding through this canyon and it's still the river that's in control and It was big. Everything was massive about it. Like, and and we had been told that 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 we were going to see big water, bigger rocks, and even bigger sieves. And that's exactly what we saw. Um, we were going through box canyons that were a thousand feet up. And you know, when you say think back, what do you see? That I I vividly remember. You know, one vertical walled canyon, fairly flat water going through it. It's dark on the inside because it's so, so deep and the walls are so tight and steep that the light isn't coming in. So the water's like black and the rocks are dark, almost black looking. You're getting views of some of the 20,000 foot snow-capped peaks of Peru. And then as you continue down, you're encountering these massive rapids, like some of the biggest rapids that I've run. Um, with just enormous boulders, you know, boulders much lar larger than like the house I live in. And then some rapids are totally unrunnable because the water's going under these boulders. You feel so small and insignificant that, you know, you're, you're floating through this. It's pretty special. And the team slept on small spits of sand, hung clothes on rocks to dry in the equatorial air. Day two in the abysmo sped by in a blur of movement. During the initial difficult rapids, they would eddy out and scout, and in some places the sieves, or places where water rushes past an obstacle and threaten to trap a boater, forced them to get out and walk. They covered ten miles, ran the biggest rapids of their careers, and paddled stretches of river so deep inside canyon walls, it's entirely likely that they were amongst only a handful of humans ever to see the inner workings of this canyon. Day two was really fun, going through some beautiful scenery, Fun rapids, a little bit of portaging, no problems. They were cruising. They were making good time. The day's progress filled the evening's conversations. But then they started to think ahead, to think about that bridge and the end. Best case scenario, we were going to see the bridge that day. But then I, I started thinking, well, why is that the best case scenario? Why would I want this to end quickly? We paddle a short distance before the portaging begins. The drops quickly transition into a larger and more civvy character. Not a good combination. The river is running almost below ground in places. This new hazard slows our pace to barely more than a crawl. 
Each drop and rapid requires a huge amount of scouting and discussion. Most of the time we never find a passable line and carry our fully loaded boats, 70 pounds plus, along the shore, which is anything but a simple stroll along the river. Seven hours later, we guess we've only traveled about four or five miles. You know, it wore on us because it was such a big river to keep paddling constantly, like over to the shore and scout was time, con- you know, time consuming and also physically and mentally exhausting. More than once, they reached a large fifth class rapid. If it had been at home on a northwest river, they might have decided to lift their food-laden kayaks onto their backs and scramble across rocky, steep banks. Yet here, that wasn't an option. The canyon walls were vertical. There was nowhere to go but through the heart of the rapid. We were dropping into some rapids that, in hindsight, maybe we wouldn't have dropped into without a scout, and so all of a sudden things are happening very fast, and it's very big, and you can't see as well as you'd like, and you're kind of just dealing. Okay, I want to look at Shane's situation from a slightly scientific point of view. What allows people to maintain focus during potentially life-threatening situations? Well, most of us are quick to answer that it's got to be a little bit of adrenaline that keeps us going. It's not. In fact, adrenaline essentially shuts down the decision-making part of the brain. It's actually noradrenaline that does the job. In one of the earliest studies that identified noradrenaline as something separate from adrenaline, researchers created two sets of study participants. For lack of a better way of describing it, the researchers scared the bejesus out of the first group without warning. The stress released adrenaline into the participant's system, creating the standard fight-or-flight response. For the second group, the researchers warned the participants that they were about to be scared. Essentially, they were ramping up the stress levels, and they discovered something. When knowingly placed in a stressful, possibly life-threatening situation, the adrenal glands produce something different than adrenaline, noradrenaline. Essentially, dopamine is manufactured into noradrenaline, which triggers many of the same reactions typical of adrenaline, but with one very important addition. Noradrenaline interacts with the parts of the brain's frontal lobes critical to decision-making process and focus. These are the same neurochemical receptors that ADHD sufferers use drugs like Ritalin and Adderall to treat. The second group of research participants did more than react in fight-or-flight manner. They were able to focus and make rapid decisions to avert the situation. So, as Shane paddles towards a massive gaping rapid with potentially life-threatening sieves and holes, his body begins to ramp up for that stress. The sound reverberates inside his chest cavity, blood is sent to the extremities, heart and breath rate quickens. Dopamine is broken down into noradrenaline. The part of the brain ready to make split-second decisions is queued up, like a car that has been warming up in the driveway. It's a complex biochemical system that taps into powerful chemicals, running at this heightened level for days at end. While we may be capable of it, it's pretty draining on the system. I don't know, it's been a lot of work. Yesterday we went five miles, we paddled something like seven and a half hours. Everything is holding true. This is a big river, there's big boulders, there's even bigger sieves. I hope we're not walking as much as we walked yesterday. We put on this river, 
No idea where the takeout was, no idea how long it was, no idea which direction it flowed. I'm hoping we see that bridge late today or early tomorrow at the latest. Day four, we woke up with a little bit of renewed energy. Um, you know, we got a good night's sleep, we got fed, and, and we just kind of had this confidence, like we'll probably see the bridge pretty soon. So for the first couple hours, it was just kind of fun. The river had opened up a little bit, um, and the rapids, we weren't portaging as much. So we had a good momentum going, like spirits were lifting. And then all of a sudden we started hitting more rapids or more bigger rapids that required big scouts, more portaging. Rapids that we would have definitely been scouting on day one, now we like were feeling more comfortable with and we were just dropping in. Even some easy class five rapids we were dropping in and just kind of figuring out on the way through. And so anytime we get that, like a subtle clue that, oh, the tributary, there might be a tributary coming in on the left, our, our hopes would kind of build, like, oh, this is probably the tributary. And then we'd come around that corner and it would just be a dry wash or the river would bend the other way. And, and it really started to become this head game of where is this tributary? Like, we can't even expect to see the bridge until we see the tributary. Every conversation, every thought revolved around that bridge. We even got to the point where we were questioning, like, is there any way we could have missed the bridge? <laughs> Which is somewhat, somewhat crazy, you know, but like, I, it's funny how your mind starts to play those tricks, but like, like, is there any way we could have just like fully missed the bridge? And we're like, of course we couldn't have missed the entire bridge. While there is a degree of hard work in navigating this river, it hasn't reached the point of being miserable. And yet, here we are, actually having a desire to see the takeout, the end. If you ask me, where else in the world would I rather be at this moment, I would say, right here, right now, in this moment. Yet all we can think about is the bridge, Puente Pasaje, and the end. To exist in a place of this scale, it's exhausting. Without maps, without the photos or the beta, there was nothing to tether them down. No way to bite off manageable goals. No way to even set goals. The only option was to go paddle stroke by stroke, eddy to eddy, rapid to rapid, to exist entirely in the moment. And it was harder than any of them had ever imagined. We didn't know if the takeout, the bridge, was around the corner or if it was two days away at some points in the river. You didn't know how to pace yourself. I, I didn't feel as out of control like in, a, in an individual rapid, as much as sometimes I felt out of control on a bigger level, like on the pace of our day and on where I was letting my, where I was expending my energy. I don't know, I think this has been the hardest river I've ever done. <clears throat> Every day is the same. We wake up, there's a huge gorge downstream. We drop in, we film a few rapids, and then basically we just deal the rest of the day until four o'clock, until we're so tired we can't paddle anymore. Please, Puente Pasaje. While their physical skills stayed strong, they could feel their minds beginning to slip. 
despite being in one of the most beautiful places in the planet, despite being in the situation all three of them had worked their entire adult lives to be in, they wanted out. They needed out. And this is when I think I really, well, it was beforehand that I started like questioning also like, well, why am I so anxious? You know, I mean, granted we're running out of food, but like this river is amazing. Like I'm having so much fun. Why am I in such a rush to get out of here? Or like, you know, why is that what I'm focusing on and not just focusing on the moment and the enjoyment of just running the river? Why are we so focused on the end? But it was like that uncertainty of where is it? Is it one mile away? Is it 10 miles away? that always has your, you know, had our minds like questioning and asking and looking for clues. And, and I think we're just, we're a very inquisitive species by nature. And so that becomes the question, like, where is the bridge? Where is the end? Where is the peak? You know, is this a fault summit or a blind corner? Like what's around it? I think we were definitely at that point of being maxed out in ability and skill. Um, and stamina that like we wanted that you know we wanted that end to come to know that we made it the rapids were still huge with fewer hazards but something that all three of them would typically consider to be fun wasn't they could see it in their faces this had to end soon and then at 11 o'clock in a stretch of canyon where they wouldn't have expected it the tributary appeared. Then a huge rapid, divided by a gravel bar bigger than any of them had ever seen, with VW-sized boulders creating two channels. And finally, beyond that, Puente Pasaje, the bridge passage. It's a pretty dull name for a bridge, actually. And we ran the rapid, and then it pretty much like flattened out, and we, you know, another corner or two, and there was this gigantic metal orange bridge. Of course, we couldn't have missed it. <laughs> Do you, do you think that you found your, your limit of your abilities on that river? Do you think that you found that edge that, that you'd been looking for? I mean, on the one hand, we did find that edge. But we find that edge in different ways, too. You know, we, I, I found that edge on my local backyard run. or But I think what was unique about the Abysmo was that not only did I find the edge, but I found myself being so aware of finding the edge. Do you need uh, such such an intense level to have a truly f- profound experience? I mean, do you need do you, do you think that having a map or more information? Do you think it somehow dumbs down the experience? Like if you'd had a map or, or a GPS like this, if you'd had that, it might not have been one of the most profound experiences of your kayaking career. I don't know that you need to have it, but I think it it, it burns those images into your mind more when it's there. You can go out almost anywhere on any adventure with a map of where you're going and maybe a GPS and a compass and all these like instruments that tell you where you're at and they you know they take away a certain amount of your own experience because they're they're now giving you the information rather than you figuring out that information. You know it forced us to like you know, take in the surroundings, take in the clues that, like, the environment was giving us. And so by us doing more of that work, it certainly, like, enhances that experience, I think. Even in some of the hardest parts of the river, we were kind of, like, thinking ahead, thinking of that bridge. Now, you know, after the fact, 
I don't remember thinking about the bridge. I remember, you know, those hard rapids, those intense gorges, you know, those beautiful places. So those will definitely be the memories that I carry through. Puente Psy. The place that they'd so dearly wanted to be proved to be nothing more than a big, ugly, orange bridge. Shane, Andrew, and Brian got to know it a lot better than they would have liked to. They spent 26 hours there and ran out of food before a truck carrying coffee beans to market finally crossed the bridge and offered them a ride. A big thanks today to Shane, Andrew, Brian, and Todd Gilman. They make up the range life, and a lot of the sounds and parts of the interviews you heard are straight from the Apermax banks. To see video from the trip and the absolutely epic truck ride out of the gorge, visit them at www.therangelife.com. If you listen to the audio-only portion of this episode, it's worth going back and checking out the photo-enhanced version on our website. Music today by Seba, Ken Christensen, and the Grand Valley State University New Music Ensemble, performing Stephen Reich's Music for 18 Musicians. I pretty much had that album on repeat for the last week. If you've got a story suggestion or a comment, please feel free to email us at dirtbagdiaries at earthlink.net. None of this would be possible without the support of Patagonia. If you're looking for a bargain, Patagonia.com and Patagonia stores are in the midst of their winter sales. I'm Fitzcall, and you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries.